Let's begin with a word of prayer as we come to the word of God this morning. Our Father, we come humbly to your word that you have spoken to us. And we recognize that there are many obstacles, many in our own hearts, that keep us from seeing the wonderful things that are within it. And so we ask you and your mighty power and because of your great love, you would open the eyes of our hearts, soften our souls, that we might be drawn more to you as a result of looking at your word. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever been surprised by a gift? And I don't just mean surprised once you open the gift, because hopefully that happens on, you know, when when you actually receive a gift that you don't know is coming, although the more in adult life you get, the more you know what your gifts are before they come, right? Um, Either because you... uh, you see the Amazon list or, or whatnot. But what I mean is, have you ever been so surprised that you're even receiving a gift? In other words, you're not expecting anything and someone shows up in your life and says, we're giving you this. That is a true surprise where there's... It's not a birthday or Christmas where you're expecting something and you're just not sure what it is. It's you're not expecting anything and then you're suddenly told of this gift. Now this has only happened to me a few times in my life, but it always produces in me a profound sense of gratitude for the grace and the kindness that's been given to me. I didn't deserve this thing and yet... I've been blessed by the generosity of the giver. And I'm sure you can relate to that reality. Every time that we are given something we're not expecting, we are humbled and grateful for it. In our passage today, we're going to see a surprise gift like this, but only on a massive scale. It's a surprise gift to one man and one woman but it has implications for all humanity, including us today. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we are going through the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 1. And in fact, if you're not there already, I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 1. If you do not have your own copy, you could use a Bible that's in the pew rack directly in front of you. I invite you to turn there to Luke Chapter 1. And Luke, the author of this gospel, is giving us an account of the things that took place concerning Jesus Christ. His goal is to answer questions such as, how did Jesus show up? How did the Son of God come to earth? What did the Son of God come to do? What were the circumstances of his life that demonstrated what God's plan for humanity was? 
And at this time, here in Luke 1, it had been 400 years since the nation of Israel had heard from the Lord directly. And they were waiting to hear from him. They were waiting for their Messiah, the promised one who would deliver them and bring salvation and redemption to Israel. And so the first event that marked the beginning of God, beginning to act yet again directly in human affairs, is this event here in Luke chapter 1 in the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, found in verses 5 through 25 in Luke chapter 1. This morning we will finish this vignette. We've already looked at this for two weeks, and in it we've been looking at three movements of the story which reveal God's grace and reveal his salvation plans. Three movements of the story. In verses 5 through 7, we saw first off a tragic situation. A tragic situation. Look at it with me. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here we saw this tragic situation in which a godly couple who had been walking faithfully before the Lord for many years are, have empty arms as they do not have any children. And we sense the sorrow and the sadness as this couple has been faithful and yet they do not have any children. This led us then to see the second movement in this story, which was a gracious surprise in verses 8 through 23. And we just began to look at this last week. First, in verses 8 through 10, we saw the setting or the circumstances of this gracious surprise. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. He says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, as we looked at last week, this, the setting here is at the temple, the, the center of Israelite worship from uh, the time that the temple was first built under Solomon and it was rebuilt after Israel came back from exile. And then Herod the Great, in order to appease the Jews, he built this magnificent and beautiful temple. And here in this temple, we see some ordinary circumstances, and that is that Zechariah was on duty. This was something that took place twice a year. He and Elizabeth would come to Jerusalem. He would serve in the temple, and he would work there in offering the, in, in doing the different priestly duties for the week, and then they would go home. And this is how the many thousands of priests would cycle through the temple in order to take care of all the temple duties throughout the year. But in the midst of these ordinary circumstances in which he is on duty, we saw some, an extraordinary event. 
And that was that he was chosen by lot to burn incense. And again, if you were with us last week, we spent some time diving into this to see that these, for a priest to be chosen by lot to burn incense was a unique privilege. It was something that only took place once in his lifetime. And so Zechariah, no doubt a man at least over 60 years old, is here able to do what he has longed to do and been privileged to do, and that is to be able to go into the most holy place or the holy place closest to the presence of God behind the veil and to be able to offer incense on the incense altar. And while he's doing that, it says, verse 10, that the whole multitude is outside. The worshipers that have come for the day are all there uh, prostrate before the Lord and praying to God, knowing that the priest is inside, Zechariah is there offering the incense in which it represents their prayers as it, that uh, recipe of spices were put upon the altar and then the smoke would arise in representing the prayers of the nation going up and being accepted before God. And so the people are there waiting for him to do his duty and for him to return. This is something that took place every morning and every evening. And so there was a cadence to this, uh, of the, this worship that would take place every morning and every evening. The worshipers knew about how long this would take place. And so they were simply waiting for Zechariah to do his thing and to return. And that is where we saw the announcement of this gracious surprise beginning in verse 11 and going through verse 17. Follow along as I read those verses, verses 11 through 17. And there appeared to him, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so here, in the midst of this announcement, this gracious surprise occurs while Zechariah is performing his duty as he's approaching the altar of incense, either before or after he's offered the incense, an angel suddenly appears before him to his left, to the right of the altar. And verse 12 says that he was troubled and great fear fell upon him. And as we talked about last time, he no doubt had in the back of his mind the memory of the scriptures of Leviticus chapter 10 of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who went in and offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord and were consumed. And so therefore, as he's there and 
all of a sudden, a messenger for the Lord in blazing glory shows up before him. He is freaked out for his life. And in the presence, as he's there in the presence of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord appears before him, and he, he fears that the messenger could be there for judgment. And so it says he's troubled and great fear has fallen upon him. But verse 13, we see that the angel speaks up and speaks a word of consolation. Speaks a word of consolation. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Do not be afraid. The first words out of the angel's mouth are words of peace, are words of comfort in order to calm Zechariah's heart. This is the common first word of angels throughout Scripture because as we noted last week, a common reaction when people saw angels was to be afraid. And so therefore, in God's kindness and mercy, he had the angels in their first words give them consolation to his people. We, that was the case in Genesis 15 to Abraham, in Judges 6 to Gideon, and as we know, the women at the tomb in Matthew 28, as they go to see Jesus, and Jesus is gone, and there's angels there, and he tells them to not be afraid. And the, these were the words, the exact words, that Zechariah needed to hear. They were a balm to his soul. Because, you see, it didn't matter what the angel said next. He could trust the angel that it was going to be good and not worthy of his anxiety. And so it was helpful for the angel to give this word of consolation on the front end. It, puts, it put the listener's heart at ease. But after this word of consolation, he gives this surprising announcement. And he tells Zechariah three things. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will have a son, and his, your son's name will be John. Now, this first thing the angel says, that his prayer has been heard, there's question about what, what prayer is this? Is this the prayers that Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying for many, many years? Or is this a prayer that he had prayed right there at the altar of incense in the midst of his priestly duties? In which most likely would have been a more national prayer, a prayer that would have involved the whole community of Israel praying for their redemption and for the salvation of Israel. So is it a personal prayer for a child or a national prayer for salvation? And frankly, I think it's left a little vague and could include both realities. That Zechariah's prayer over time and even on that day has been heard. And the reality is, is that the two prayers are intertwined, as we'll find out. A prayer, an answer for a child ends up being part of God's answer for salvation of Israel. And so, in a sense, they're both included. And so, Zechariah has been told that his prior prayers regarding a child have been heard, 
and God is granting his wife to have a son. And he says that the son's name will be called John. John, which means God is gracious. An appropriate name, don't you think? For God beginning to act in salvation for his people brings along a man whose name is God is gracious. And so just from his miraculous conception, it's clear that he will be a special man. In other words, this isn't just God saying, I've seen that you, are, you and Elizabeth have been barren, and I want to give you a child, end of story. But there's this reality of God prompting and giving this child in this way shows that he, there's a special mission, and that he... His naming the child, showing, again, God's hand upon this man's life. But the angel goes on to describe more ways in which John is special. Not only is his name special, not only is his conception going to be special and brought about by the power of the Lord, but he lists some other things. Beginning in verse 14, he says that his arrival will bring joy. The arrival of John was going to bring joy. He says, verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. I mean, you can't pack enough joy words into one verse. You will, he says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. I mean, if the angel wanted to get across the point that John was going to be the cause of great joy. First, joy to his parents, which of course we can, under, we can understand, right? They had been waiting so long, and now they will finally hold a child in their arms. Now, my wife and I just found out last week that we are having a son, but that was, uh, and we were filled with great joy over that, but this isn't our first child, and it wasn't announced through an angel. It was announced through an ultrasound technician, which... Again, was great joy for us, but you can understand the, the tremendous joy that this couple would have to know that the Lord personally sent an angel to this couple to tell them that he was giving them a son. And he says that they will have joy and gladness. The word for gladness here, typically used of dancing about with great exuberance, communicating the tremendous joy that they will have. But secondly, he says that not only will Zachariah and Elizabeth be joyful, but he says that many will rejoice at his birth. I think that his birth here, yes, could result, could be uh, referring to uh, when he is actually born, that the friends and family and neighbors around will rejoice along with Zachariah and Elizabeth. But I think his birth is speaking more of his general arrival and what he is uh, here on earth to do. Once he is born and once he is grown, there is a mission that he has, and through this man, many will rejoice. Not simply the fact that he is born. It's important, too, that he says that many will rejoice, not all. We know that there were those who hated John, and he eventually got beheaded because of that hatred. 
So not all, but many will rejoice in his birth. And here the angel is indicating that in the future, many people will thank God that John had been born because through his ministry, many people will be turned from darkness to light. Now, joy is a theme in all of Luke's writings of Luke and Acts, and we'll see that as we go through the, at least through the book of Acts, or sorry, through the book of Luke. And it, you, the joy usually surrounds the great, God's great work of salvation through Jesus. This announcement of salvation, you think of even the infancy narratives, this, this telling of the birth of Jesus, that there is joy, uh, news of great joy that surrounded his arrival. And so joy is coming because God is moving once again to save his people. This joy signals that God is about to work. He's going to work in such a way that will cause people to jump for joy. And friends, this joy promised by the angel 2,000 years ago is the same kind of joy that you and I can have through salvation in Jesus. It's a joy that comes through knowing God's salvation plan revealed through his son. And as we'll see, John's mission was to point people to the Lord, to Jesus. And as they obeyed the voice of God through John, they received joy and blessing by being in right relationship with God, their creator. You see, when we're not walking according to God's word. Life is miserable for us. Sure, people try to numb their consciences with uh, different things to try to help them ignore the fact that life is miserable. We try to find ways to make us feel better when we're living life how we want to live. And mankind, the history of mankind, and our society today and cultures all over the world point to the fact that people look for escapes. They look for temporary pleasures to turn to. Everything from food to entertainment to intoxicating substances in order to numb the reality that life in this fallen world is vain and is toilsome apart from God. But the message of the Bible is, and the message of the gospel for you here today, is that only in God is our soul truly at rest. Only in Him do we find true, lasting joy. As the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you do not know that joy this morning, the joy of following Jesus and having your life set right before the Lord, I invite you to come down and talk to me after the service. I would love to share with you of how following Jesus brings great joy. Well, looking back at the text, the angel continues to give six descriptions of John, which will be the cause of many rejoicing. What is it about John? What makes him so special? Well, the, the angel gives a a listing of the different things. Starting in verse 15, he first gives a summary of John's life, a summary of his life. He says, 
For, verse 15, he will be great before the Lord. The angel says that many will rejoice over him because he will be great before the Lord. Now, wouldn't this be something that we wish God would say of us um, at the announcement of, of our birth? That we too would be great before the Lord. This is an amazing statement. And this is confirmed when in, we have recorded for us in Matthew 11, verse 11, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Of all those born of women before this time, none were greater than John the Baptist. Why will John be great? John will be great because he, he is a prophet, because he will herald the arrival of the Messiah. But most simply, it's because he will live his life to serve the Lord. He will be devoted unto the Lord and therefore will be great before the Lord. Now, the heart of every true believer is to be, do great things for the Lord and to be great before Him. We don't want to be shameful before Him. We don't want to do little things for God. We want to do great things for the Lord. We want to see our lives count for something for the Lord. And so we want, this a posit- we want this positive approval of God on our lives. And I think it's important that we remember the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 10. In fact, I encourage you to turn there with me, just a few pages to the left. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 43. This is in the midst of the somewhat shameful account of James and John asking for privileged positions within the kingdom. Jesus recognizing the pride from which that request stems from, he proceeded to give the disciples a lesson on what it means to be truly great. Because their vision of great was privileged positions, sitting at the right and left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. And Jesus says to them, look in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, the disciples, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But... It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The point here is that Jesus doesn't condemn the desire to be great. He says, Who, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In other words, there is a path to greatness in the Christian life. But as it's been said before, the way up is down. 
The way to be great is the path of humility. To be the servant or slave of all, he says, which was modeled after Jesus Christ himself who came not to be served but to serve, culminating in his giving his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, humility is necessary for greatness. And I think that would be the case for John the Baptist, that to, for, for, for the, the angel to say that he's going to be great before the Lord means that John is going to be a humble man. And in fact, we have the recorded declaration of John, right, who says that I must decrease and he, being Jesus, must increase. He's willing to take the back seat, to let Jesus have the spotlight. And in that, demonstrating the humility that we all must demonstrate if we would be great before the Lord. You see, God wants each one of us to be great before the Lord. But the path to greatness is by following our Savior through servanthood. So we not only see a summary of his life that he is going to be great, but we see that he's going to be, have a disciplined life is the second thing that we see back in Luke chapter 1. A disciplined life. He says he is not to drink wine or strong drink. Now this kind of ascetic lifestyle has caused commentators to connect John either with the priests who weren't allowed to drink wine or strong drink when they served, or with the, those who took the Nazarite vow back in Numbers chapter 6, which included refraining from strong drink and also not cutting one's hair. And there is some good reason that, that I think that connects all of that. I don't think either situation applies directly to John. But the, what all, both the, the, the call to the priests, the Nazarite vow, and I think even here in the description of John, the purpose is that they are consecrated to the Lord. That these people are set apart unto God for special purposes. And I believe that's what the angel is telling Zechariah here. Is that John is a special man. He's set apart by God for a special mission. And even his diet communicated that. So this special diet and disciplined lifestyle again communicates his set-apartness unto the Lord. But not only is he not controlled by spirits, by strong drink, but he's controlled and filled with the Holy Spirit. It says that he will have an empowered life. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And so we see this similar juxtaposition as we see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where the command of believers is, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So here, uh, John is not to have wine or strong drink, but is that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This communicates that John was set apart before birth for his special life and mission. This set-apartness, this filled with the Holy Spirit specialness, notice, was not because of his virtue. In other words, God didn't look upon John and say, wow, you're such a godly man, I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. 
nor was it the result of John's choice in which he, he, he says, uh, oh, I'm going to follow God and therefore God blessed him. No, this was because of God's sovereign choice in John's life. That at a point when he could not, could not choose, in which he had done neither good nor evil, God chose John. And so this close association between God's Holy Spirit being filled into this baby in the womb showed that God was going to use John for great things. We see then as we turn to verse 16 that not only will he be empowered with the Spirit, but he's going to be a reformer. He's going to have a reforming role within the nation of Israel. Verse 16 says that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. The angel next highlights what John will do for the nation. Okay, he's a special guy. We get it. He's going to have a unique life. He's going to be filled with the Spirit. But what is he going to do? And the angel says he will turn many people to the Lord their God. John, through his preaching will cause many people to turn from their sin and turn toward the Lord. The word turn here, it simply means to change one's orientation or the direction of one's life. And this turning was used throughout the Old Testament to speak of Israel's repentance as they returned to Yahweh. God frequently called them to turn back to Him, to turn away from their sin and turn to God. And this is what repentance is, is a simple act of turning. It's, it's sometimes described as a 180 degree turn. You're going this way and you turn a whole 180 and you go a new direction. That is repentance. And John was going to be the cause of the repentance of many in Israel as they turn back to the Lord their God. Notice that it's, the angel highlights even the special relationship that God has with his people Israel. It's the Lord their God. God was their God and he was coming to save We see not only then John's reforming role of causing people to turn back to the Lord, but we see his prophetic role, and these, and these are tied closely together. But his prophetic role in, verses, in verse uh, 17, it says, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And so John's reforming role stems from his prophetic role. And so he's essentially coming on the scene here as another Old Testament prophet. When we turn the, open the pages of the New Testament here, we in many ways are still in an Old Testament world, meaning that as we've seen, the Old Testament worship uh, through the temple is still in place. The temple and a priestly system and sacrificial system is still in play. And John here serves as a bridge. John is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
between the, what God did with the nation of Israel and what he is doing through his Messiah. And so John has characteristics of both the old age and the new age. A prophet is one who spoke on behalf of God. And the angel says that he will go, this prophet, John, will go before him, go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now this going before him is a reference to Malachi chapter 3. And let's flip back there just for a moment. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. So if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and turn the page back, or page or two, you should get to Malachi. So here in the last book of the Old Testament, and as represented in our canon, the last of the Old Testament books, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we see this prophecy that says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here there's a prophecy that one is going to be sent, a messenger is going to be sent who's going to go before the Lord. And so when the angel in Luke chapter 1 announces that John is going to go before the Lord, that is our clue that in some senses John is going to be fulfilling this prophecy. But not only will John go before in terms of time, in other words, he's not just being born before Jesus and that's all the angel is saying. No, he's saying he's going to go before him in terms of being the forerunner. He's going to be the herald announcing the coming of the Lord. And in that sense, he's going before him. But we see that he is also coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. This ties into Malachi chapter 4, in which Again, these are the very last verses that we have in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, uh, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." So here in, in Luke chapter 1, as the angel is announcing that John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children, of the fathers to the children, he's pulling in these prophecies in Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4 and saying that John is fulfilling this role of forerunner and herald of the Messiah. Now it's important that he says in the spirit and power of Elijah and later in the book of Luke we'll address was John Elijah? Did he fully fulfill that Malachi chapter 4 passage? And, and we'll look at that in more detail later on in the book. But the, the point I want you to see this morning is that the angel says he's going to go in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to speak with boldness like Elijah. He's going to seek repentance 
like Elijah. And in that way is going to step into and pick up the mantle of an Old Testament prophet, one that Israel has not seen for 400 years. But he says the result of that, of that prophetic role, is that he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. There's lots of different explanations commentators give for what that means. I think the best explanation is that when the people return to the Lord, that there is going to be massive transformation in the nation of Israel all the way down to the most basic unit of society, and that is the family. That when people turn their hearts back to the Lord, that it's going to transform even into the family, the most basic unit of society. And so the nation would be transformed at that most intimate point as the hearts of the fathers turn to the children. And fathers begin to take up their God-given role of shepherding their children. But he says also that it's going to turn the disobedient from the wisdom uh, to the wisdom of the just. Here he seems to refer to Israel turning from disobedience to obedience. Rather than listen to the foolishness of wicked men, they would follow the wisdom of the just. In other words, they would follow the word of God. And so what we see here is that through the ministry of John the Baptist, he's going to go out in a reformer prophetic role to the nation of Israel, and people are going to have the relationship with God, their vertical relationship made right as they return in repentance to God yet again. And in that process of getting their vertical relationship with God right, it's also going to affect the horizontal. And that their lives within their families and spanning out from there is going to be changed too. And so we see a totality of transformation, repentance, and reformation in the nation of Israel. And finally, at the end of verse 17, we see the angel give a summary of the mission of John. And that is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John is a preparer. He's there getting everything ready. He's there so that when the Messiah comes, he can one day point to him and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And say, I must decrease and he must increase. John is laying the groundwork and preparing the people. John's ministry fulfilled what was spoken of in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that we will look more closely at in in chapter 3 when those verses are quoted. But this is where we get a a glimpse of that ministry, that he's going to prepare the people. And so in this, in this little summary of his ministry, that he's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared, we see both John's greatness and we see the fact that John is subordinate. We see his greatness in a subordinate place. We see his greatness because he comes in the spirit and power of one of Israel's greatest prophets, Elijah. I mean, this is an honored title, an honored position that he would step into this role and that he would be able, of all the people, he would be the one to announce the coming of the Messiah. What a privilege. And yet... There's a subordinate role here because he's just the person getting things ready. He's just 
the one preparing the stage. He's not the main show. And so we see that even he is preparing for someone greater. And here in the text, then, there's this building anticipation of who is this Lord that John's preparing the way for? Who's coming who's going to be even greater than John? I mean, if John's birth is announced this way, then, 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 then how is this Messiah going to come? Because, because this is pretty incredible. And so even as we read, and, and the readers of Luke are, are waiting to hear of the one who is yet still greater than John. And so we see, this is the end of the, the angel's initial message. Again, remember the setting. Uh, Zechariah is standing there before this altar of incense. The multitude of people are still bowing in prayer outside behind him. And he is shell-shocked with this angel that's directly in front of him. And he's, his jaws hit the floor and he's just trying to take in everything this angel has told him. Well, how is he going to respond? What's his response going to be? Let's see the reaction to the gracious surprise. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. As you can imagine, this is probably a lot for Zechariah to take in. I mean, even for us to like read through that and go line by line, and we're trying to parse it, and he's trying to take it all in. You can understand that there was a lot. I'm sure his mind was spinning. But more importantly, we see that his faith was slipping. Because you see, the first words out of Zechariah's mouth are words of skepticism and doubt. He's asking for a sign. How shall I know this? In other words, what can you show me that would help me to know that this is actually going to come true because I'm not quite believing you right now. Now, those familiar with reading the Word of God know that this is a similar question asked by other people in the history of Israel, right? In fact, Abraham asked this question. And it's an interesting parallel. Remember, Abraham and Sarah were old and barren and could not have children. God announced that they were going to have a child. Their story tracks with Zechariah and Elizabeth. But we get to this point and, and Abraham seems to have asked his question, how shall I know this, in a different spirit. Now, the words might have been virtually identical. But God doesn't just listen to our words. He looks at our hearts. And the response of the angel that we'll look at in just a minute indicates the fact that Zechariah's heart was not in the right place. He doubts and questions the possibility of this miracle because of the advanced age of he and his wife. In other words, he's still stuck up on point one. I mean, all that stuff about the reformer and pro prophetic role and turning people's hearts and all of that, he hadn't even got there. He was just stuck on you're going to have a son. And he didn't even believe that part. And isn't there something very human about this skepticism? Something so outrageous is told to us, sometimes we, we can relate with having a hard time of believing this, right? And yet, it's something very faithless 
His question, as one commentator said, his question almost amounted to, I don't believe you. And in that, we see his lack of faith. So the reaction to the gracious surprise was one of doubt. But next we see the sign of the gracious surprise. Zechariah asked for a sign, and God grants him one. But it probably wasn't what he was expecting. Look in verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Wow. The angel comes back at it with his at Zechariah's faithlessness by speaking of his authority and giving Zechariah a rebuke. We see the angel identified as Gabriel. Also, we'll, we'll see him later on in the next account, beginning in verse 26, as he announces the birth of Jesus to Mary. He's also identified in Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 9. And along with Michael, he's the only other angel named in Scripture. Gabriel means man of God, and he emphasizes his authority by saying he stood in the presence of God, and he was sent. He came by direct command of the sovereign of the universe to go to Zechariah and preach to him good news, the gospel. This is the beginning of this gospel message, and this was first announced here by Gabriel to Zechariah. In other words, it was setting in motion events to bring about the best news possible for all of humanity. And so because of Zechariah's unbelief, he was required to be silent and unable to speak until John was born, the angel says. Zechariah has at least a nine-month moratorium on speaking. And it's possible that it also affected his hearing. In verse 62 of the same chapter, when John is born and they're asking what his name is, they have to uh, make signs at him and rather than just talking to him. And so there's some commentators that believe that he could, uh, also, be, uh, that he could also be deaf. He could not hear. We're not entirely sure the main thing that the angel says here is that he is unable to speak. As one commentator said, because he made wrong use of his tongue, that tongue will now be silent. But, but note that God's justice is tempered with mercy. He says you will not be able to speak until the days that these things take place. In other words, God says I'm still going to fulfill my gracious promise to you even in spite of your faithlessness. Isn't that just like the Lord? That he can, he's so merciful to us even when we fail. Even when we're faithless, he continues to pour out his mercy for us. And so even in the midst of this rebuke to Zechariah, we see the grace of God. He's going to discipline Zechariah, teach Zechariah a lesson, and cause Zechariah's own heart to be turned back to him in greater ways. Already, the ministry of Zechariah's son is having an effect beginning with his own father.
So first the sign is given to Zechariah that he can't talk, but then the sign is now broadcast and seen by everybody. It's a sign to the people. Because in verse 21, the narrative pulls us out to remind us that there's a whole ton of people outside waiting for Zechariah to finish. And like I said earlier, there's a cadence to this. Every morning, every evening, a priest is going in there and doing this duty. And so they know how long they typically kneel in prostration before the Lord. And this is longer than normal. And what would happen is the priest would come out from offering the prayers of the people that would go up as incense before the Lord. And he would come out and, and he would pronounce the priestly blessing that we have recorded for us in number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The people were waiting for that blessing to come as the priest has come out of the presence of the Lord. And again, they would go through this routine twice a day. And so they wait a while. They're all kind of looking around at one another, wondering if maybe he had offered unauthorized fire and maybe slain there in the presence of the Lord. They don't know. But he suddenly appears, but he can't speak. The priestly blessing cannot be said. He was unable to do it. And if you think about it, if he had been able to speak and he had seen the angel and he had walked out and he had told people that he had seen this angel, no doubt some people would believe him. But there's a reality in which the fact that he is unable to talk in one sense sends the message more loud and clear that he saw something miraculous and amazing and clued other people in that something big was going on here. And, but they didn't know. John couldn't speak. But, but the fact that he saw an angel that knowing that God had visited them in this way would have been encouraging that God was beginning to act and he was beginning to speak to his people. But they would have to wait to find out exactly what God was doing. Well, the text says that when he came out, verse 22, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After the week of service was over in Jerusalem, Zechariah and Elizabeth went back home, which verse 39 tells us was in the hill country of Judea, as they finished their service. And the final piece and movement of our narrative that we see is in these last two verses, and that is a worshipful seclusion. These verses tell us the beginning of the fulfillment of the gracious promises promised by the angel. It says, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me, in the days when he looked on me to take, a, take away my reproach among people. God opened Elizabeth's womb and she was with child. She conceived. Now we don't know exactly why she secluded herself for five months. There's some debate uh, on, on why that is the case. The reality is we don't fully know. I think the best guess is in connection with her statement in verse 25 she has a heart of worship before the Lord. 
And so there's a sense in which she's secluded herself. She's in wonder at the fact that God has given her this child. And she's basking in the grace of God to her and celebrating that in private seclusion before it goes public before others. There doesn't, there's nothing in the, 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 the law that would have required this. And so uh, I think the best guess is that she was simply responding to the grace of God to her. And that's what we see her say in verse 25, right? She sees the personal act of God in her life. This is an expression of her faith in, it, in contrast to her husband's. Her husband was faithless. And here we see her faith trusting the Lord. And we see that God has taken away her reproach. He has been gracious and kind to her. And so in conclusion, we see in this story, first a tragic situation, then a gracious surprise resulting in a worshipful seclusion as God begins to fulfill his promise. And as we close and wrap up this text this morning, I want us to quickly see three things that we need to take away from this passage. Three quick things. The first, again, is the point of what Luke is doing with this narrative. That, we, that God began his great messianic work on earth by announcing the birth of John to his father, Zechariah, in the temple. And the ministry of John would be the cause of great revival in Israel and would pave the way for Jesus. So we need to see the role of John and the crucial role that he plays in this beginning of this gospel story. The second thing that we need to take away from this passage is that God cares for and is involved in individual lives. This story of God's individual care for Zechariah and Elizabeth illustrates this in a tender way. They prayed for many years, and yet God had not forgotten about them. He was showing his grace to them, and, and they were a part of a larger story, but he showed his grace and kindness to them as well. And the third and final thing that we can take away from this passage is that we must believe the Word of God. Everything it says will come to pass. And as we see the mild rebuke to Zechariah that he did not believe the word of the angel is a reminder to us that as the word of God has spoken to us, we must believe every word of it. May we learn from Zechariah's faithlessness that we might have faith as we read and receive the word of God. It is life to us. We must simply receive it humbly and meekly. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, you are kind and you are gracious to give us your word. And we marvel at the way that you began to work those 2,000 years ago in bringing about the great good news, the great gospel story that you were moving to reconcile sinful humanity to yourself. May you help us to be in wonder of that. May you cause us to cry out to you and to believe your word, recognizing that you care for us and work intimately in our lives. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.